My name's Heidi. The first reading this morning is from Mark 15, verses 1 to 41. That's Mark 15, beginning at verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, 
one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come on down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, they said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Emma. And it's my delight to read you the second Bible reading from today. And that's from Psalm chapter 22, verses 1 to 8, and then 14 to 20. So Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And then from verses 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. 
They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Good morning. My name's Andrew. I'm a member of staff here. Uh, it's a pleasure to see you all. I might get to say good day to one or two of you afterwards. It would be a great joy to be able to do that. Um, I don't know if you, like me, um, have had this experience. The phone rang. I didn't recognise the number, but I stupidly picked it up. This is an automated message. You have an outstanding tax bill. The ATO has issued a warrant for your arrest... Pay immediately or face prison time. Thank you. Have a good day. (laughs) And so I let the phone go dead and I thought about that for a moment and I thought, I reckon that's a scam. (laughs) And instead of making a phone call to the ATO or whoever it might be, I might just let that one ride and see if the police actually turn up to my door. Or perhaps you have received an email saying that Uh, Someone in Africa urgently needs to transfer into your bank account 40 million pounds. And I don't know about you, but the the immediate thought in my mind is, gee, that would be good. (laughs) Or maybe you have had someone want to overpay you on Gumtree and then ask for your bank details so that you can reimburse them somehow the difference so that they end up having that extra amount of money. Or maybe Telstra has recently called you because you've got modem troubles that they know about and they just want your bank account details so they can take the money out to cover the cost of the repairs that they're about to do. Um, We live in a world of scams and fakes, don't we? And we're getting sick of it, really. So it's no wonder that what we want is what's true. And it's no wonder that there's a bit of a movement in our day for authenticity. And this is the definition of authenticity that I came across. Being true to your own personality, values and spirit, regardless of the pressure you're under to act otherwise. Of course that's what we need, isn't it, in this day and age of fakes and scams? Um, Well, no, it's actually not, I want to suggest to you. Here's why. One of the people in our world at the moment who is living true to his own personality and values and spirit, regardless of the pressure that he's under, is Vladimir Putin. And that's a large example. But many of us are just the same because what we're actually seeking to pursue is what we want. And so this morning, here's the point that I want to make. Yes, we do crave what's true. Yes, we do crave what is authentic. And those are genuinely good pursuits. But what we really need is Jesus. Because he is true to his values regardless of the pressure. So much so that the guy who was responsible for killing him immediately after would say this. And that's why I'm going to be referring to verse 39 a couple of times this morning, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God, God's true king, dying to reconnect us 
once and for all with the God who has made us and has loved us and has died to save us. Please, would you join me as we pray again? Because what we're about to do is a spiritual thing. We're seeking to understand God through his word and we need his help. So please join me and let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the authenticity of Jesus. He was true not only to his own personality and values and spirit, but true to you. And he served you, trusting you, and didn't sin, and he did that for us. Please help us to see that instead of being a fake king, he is your true king and ours. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Jesus dies actually being accused of being a fake king. That's the first point that I want to make. But he does it in an authentic historical context. So there seems to be quite a contrast. You're a fake, but... We know, actually, that his context is rock-solid historical. And so it sets up the question for us, is he God's king? Is he a real king or is he not? So have a look at verse 32 if you've got a Bible open. And this is a bit of a summary of, of this first part of the passage that Heidi read for us before. Verse 32, Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe and those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus is on trial and now being crucified and murdered as a fake king. And here's why I say it. There are eight times in this passage up to this point that we hear these words. In verse 2, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? So are you a king? And then in verse 9, he says to the crowd, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And then he's saying, Pilate, the same again, what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And then the soldiers mock Jesus, putting a purple robe on him. And purple is the color of absolute power. Only kings and rulers would wear such a thing. They twist together a crown of thorns because they're actually mocking him. They don't believe that he's a king. And they say to him, hail, king of the Jews. And then there's a notice that is written, and it's a historical fact, that a notice of this type would be written and carried in front of the prisoner who was about to be condemned and then nailed above that person. And the notice, the accusation against him, and it's mockery, isn't it? The king of the Jews. And then again in verse 32, the religious leaders are yelling at him, saying, let this Messiah... This king of Israel come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. It's clear, isn't it? Neither the Romans nor the Jews actually believe that he is a king and they accuse him of being a fake in a real power context. I just want to spend a moment just setting that context, that historic context, just highlighting four different things quite quickly. The first is the Sanhedrin. This was the highest court for the Jewish people. It met in Jerusalem. It had rules for meeting, which were all being broken in this process of of having tried Jesus. But it began with Moses and the 70 people that he appointed to be elders amongst the people of Israel. The second thing that really highlights the the rock-solidness of this historic context is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the fifth prefect in Judea. And we have evidence of this that was kind of dug up in 1961 in Caesarea with his name on it, testifying to this fact. Now, 
He was Caesar's man in full control over life and death, even over the Sanhedrin. And what we know about him from other sources is that he was a very nasty piece of work. He comes off as being reasonably powerless and innocuous in this kind of situation. But this guy was nobody's friend. The third piece of historic information, amongst the many other things in here, is the crucifixion. The Phoenicians, before the Romans had begun it, the Romans had perfected it, and it was a commonly used device that only was going to kill the worst of criminals and slaves, never a Roman citizen. But it was going to be an advertisement that Rome ruled. And lastly, to set the historic frame, the word Messiah. This brings us back into the Jewish context. God's people, the Jews, had expected a very large, powerful king to come and liberate them. And this is the power context for the accusation against Jesus. To the Jews, the Messiah would be a ruler and a conqueror. But saying that you're a Messiah and not being that conqueror, you're a fake But you're also a blasphemer, someone who is saying that I am of God and I am God and I'm God in his place. That's why they wanted to kill Jesus. And they're they're literally laughing in his face and spitting in his face. And to the Romans, a king looks like a military and a political conqueror. Caesar, who can crush rivals. Calling yourself a king in this context meant opposing Caesar and it meant certain death. So a real king in this real context does not look like Jesus hanging on the cross. That's the point here. Jesus dies being accused as a fake. And so it raises the question for us, is he? Is he a fake? Jesus thinks that he's not. This is my second point. Jesus dies as God's real king. And I'm thinking here of verse 34. Let me read it to you. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this looks like utter defeat, doesn't it? Not the crowning moment of God's king. First of all, there is the total darkness of the cosmic curse. And you can see that in verse 33. It's midday and it's completely black. Now, some of you would have been here in Canberra in the 2003 fires. I've only heard the stories from my parents. 3 p.m., completely black, no pressure left in the hose, no one coming to rescue If I'm not mistaken, and my mum can correct me after, they were thinking that this is it. This is it. We are dead now, and we are living our last moments. Midday, the cross of Christ, darkness comes across the land for three hours. This is a sign that what is going down here is cosmic, and it's a sign that there is a curse being laid on Jesus. But second, Jesus himself says, God is rejecting me. The author Mark 
He really, really wants us to know this because he makes sure that it's written down twice. Verse 34, first in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lema samachthane, which means, and here's the translation, but get the point, he wants it to be told twice so that we really are conscious that this is what's happening in this moment. Jesus is being abandoned. So the, the total appearance here is of curse and defeat, not victory. But yet Jesus is confident that it's the exact opposite. Instead of defeat, this is the victory. This is the moment God's king is abandoned, just as God planned, just as Jesus said, so that we won't be rejected by God. Now, I just want to tease that out a little bit. First of all, Jesus cries out in Aramaic. It's an incredibly authentic moment because the Aramaic language kind of traced its roots back into where God's people had come from, into the Semitic tribes. But it's a heart cry in his heart language. So when the chips are down, what comes out of a person's mouth is probably some of the most basic things that they've got left in them or that they can think of in that moment. I remember in a, a, a high school history class, we had a guest lecturer come along one day to, to speak to us about um, aspects of World War II. And the one thing that he said that stuck in my mind was this. When those teenage soldiers were lying wounded and dying in no man's land, what they cried out for was for their mother. The most basic thing in their deepest hour of need was the simplest thing that would come out of their mouths. Now, Jesus, in his heart language, uses his precious breath and energy to do what? To call out for his mother? No. To call out to his father? Yes. But he quotes scripture. Did you, did you hear when Emma read for us Psalm 22, verse 1, the first words that are written there, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Now, this is not the action of a teenager lying, dying in no man's land in World War II. Jesus is citing scripture. He is going back into the Old Testament and telling us basically what is happening in that moment. Because this is what God had planned. Abandonment. Yet hope in God's rescue. That's what we keep hearing later in Psalm 22. And he needs it because what the Jews understood was happening in this moment, that anyone who would be nailed to a tree, exposed like that, dying like that, was utterly cursed of God. But Jesus takes it. And remember, in some of the words that we've read just now in Isaiah 53, as we said them together, he's dying not for his sin, but for ours. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus dies genuinely abandoned, yet totally in control. It's God's plan. It's even been Jesus' own prediction that the Messiah would suffer. Mark records it at least three times for us. Perhaps the most famous verse is when Jesus says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So just pressing into this a little bit more. This whole scene is quite long, isn't it? It almost takes up one chapter out of 15 chapters. There's so much detail. It's agony and torture. I thought the Bible was a book about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Not about the torture of a man. Recently, we did the Mark drama here, which was a a theatre in the round, dramatic representation of every event in the Gospel of Mark. And one comment of a family member that I heard afterwards was, um, to one of the actors, she said, you let the agony of Jesus go on too long. And if you weren't here, how it happens is, Jesus is standing, the Jesus actor is standing on a chair in the position of the crucifixion and he, he cries out his last. Uh, so before that happens, the, everything goes black. And we hear the agony of Jesus going and going and going. And the point is that we would feel the agony of Jesus and obviously it was too much for this particular family member. You should have stopped it sooner. No, that's the point. Mark wants us to see that in this moment, Jesus is right to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because truly, Jesus is being forsaken and the agony is extreme because our sin is being placed onto him. And Mark wants us to look and to listen and to learn what Jesus understood and wanted to show. And here it is. First thing. This is what sin deserves. As you see Jesus hanging on the cross and you hear him screaming in agony and you hear him say these things, you must understand sin deserves punishment. Now, Jesus didn't deserve it. He's displayed the power of God. He's got the power over demons. He can call them out. He's got the power over disease. He can cure people with a word. He's got the power over death. He's actually even raised people along the way. And he's actually the one on whom the pleasure of God rests. Twice the father speaks over Jesus and says, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. But yet here on the cross, Jesus takes it because he wants, us to show, he wants us to see this is what sin deserves, punishment in death. This is what the future holds for those who reject God's rule. That's why Jesus is hanging there. That's why Mark wants us to really be deep in the agony and the detail of this. If we don't let Jesus be our stand-in, God will stand us in his place. And Mark is saying, look, listen, learn. If you don't let Jesus before you, this will be you under my judgment. Um, a couple of years ago, for, for about a year, I worked as a funeral director's assistant. And that work was a combination of um, transferring deceased people from where they had died back to our facility and then assisting at funerals. And assisting at funerals gave me the opportunity to hear what people will say funeral after funeral after funeral about the deceased, but what they're actually talking about is themselves. And this is what they said. This is the common narrative, at least in southeast Queensland. So I'm sure it's different in Canberra. But this is what they said. Heaven is there. People decide who get into heaven. Everyone gets to heaven. 
Of course, at the time of a funeral, that's what everyone wants to think. No one wants to think badly about the deceased. That is not what God is saying. That's why Mark will take so long for us to see Jesus who decides to be on the cross and to stay on the cross. And we've seen the perfect demonstration of what we are like throughout chapter 15, but it's been there right from the start of the gospel because this is what we are like. We say to God, no, you will not decide over us. We say to Jesus, no, you are not the king. We say to Jesus, no, you are not the Messiah. We say to God, no, you will not tell me what to do. I will tell you what to do. And God says, really? Well, your attitude does not change anything about me being God. And here is the moment that I'm going to show you that. Jesus is hanging there dying. First of all, because sin deserves punishment. But secondly, this is what the future holds if you don't let Jesus take it for you. Heaven is there. Some get in. God decides on the basis of those who trust Jesus. But lastly, here's the really, really good news. As each of us this morning looks at Jesus hanging and dying on the cross, not for his sin but for ours, we see that this is what God graciously gives. Substitution. A swap. Christ for us instead of us. Jesus is abandoned as we deserve. And Mark is saying, look at this. Listen to this. Learn from this. God and his love punishes Jesus in our place. And Jesus will willingly take it. Hallelujah. And in this moment, Jesus' kingship becomes clear. He will not get down from the cross. They can throw anything at him. They can taunt him, they can mock him, and they can call him a fake. And he says, no, no, I'm really God's real king. I will allow myself to be genuinely abandoned. I will pay the real price of human sin against God. Jesus is God's real king for us. And now here's, here's the big point and my last point. Surely Jesus is the son of God, my king. So here's the movement in this passage. Jesus is being accused of being a fake king. He demonstrates himself to be the real king. And then this centurion says, he's my king. And that's the movement that we've got to actually go through this morning and ask ourselves, am I calling Jesus a fake king? Can I see him as the real king? Will I trust him as my king? And Mark wants us to look at Jesus through the centurion's eyes to see what he sees and believe what he believes. And that's why verse 39 is so crucial. And when the centurion who stood there, he was in the front row seat in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Why is this so important? Why is this such a significant thing for this person to say? Here, here is why. Centurions had to be literate. They had to be recommended for promotion. They were at least 30 years old. They'd already served a few years in the military. They had to be ready to execute orders, readier to execute orders than to talk. So they were readier to kill than to think about it. The centurion represents Caesar. His job is to make the message clear. Caesar is king. Nobody else. And in this day, Tiberius 
Caesar Augustus was the Caesar. Caesar meant I'm the ruler, I'm the power, I'm the authority. Augustus meant I'm elevated, I'm almost divine, I'm majestic, I'm venerable. I should be honoured and worshipped. And he was the Roman legionary's oath. I swear to faithfully execute all the emperor's commands and I will not seek to avoid death for the Roman Republic. Who better to know about allegiance? Who better to know about a king? Who better to know about service? Who better to know about giving one's life for another? Who better to know about faithfully carrying out orders for someone else? Who better to make the assessment of Jesus? Up to this point, they've been screaming at him, saying, this is a fake king. And maybe the centurion was even involved in mocking Jesus. But right now, he says, surely this man died faithfully to his God and Father. Surely this man did not seek to avoid death for us. Surely this man is the Son of God, God's King. Surely this man is now worthy of my allegiance. Because he's seen that Jesus did not desert his post. Pun intended. Jesus served. And what's happened in the centurion's mind is exactly the thing that God intended. And that's why Mark even includes the comment of the temple being torn, the curtain temple being torn in two, which was the thing that God had invented to separate his holiness from the sinfulness of his people so that his anger didn't break out against them. But now look through the centurion's eyes. Now listen to the words from the centurion's mouth. Not Caesar, but Jesus is the one to trust and serve. So in this moment when he's actually been crucifying a guy for opposing Caesar, he effectively says what amounts to being a rebellious statement and says, guess what? There is one true king and it's this guy. Surely this man was worthy of allegiance, not the emperor. Surely Jesus was the one to trust. It's not a rebellious statement if it's true, is it? It's just simply the right response to God's gracious king. The centurion was convinced. The disciples were eventually convinced, but it took a resurrection. So come back on Sunday, and Ian's going to talk about that. But Mark was convinced enough to write it down so that we might be convinced So those who trust this son, who say this is God's king, my king will have life with God forever rather than being rejected. Because the future of those who trust in Jesus looks like Resurrection Sunday. And that is great news. No fake. All real, completely authentic, but eternally powerfully good. Remember I started saying, we are searching for what's real, aren't we? We are searching for what's true. We do kind of love what's authentic, but in the contemporary definition of authenticity, we don't want authenticity because even Vladimir Putin is authentic. We want what is right and true and eternal and God. And that is Jesus. And that is what he gives us. So what do you see? Perhaps you are thinking, nah, There's not a chance that it's true. I came just to keep the peace with my family 
and I'm going to leave still scratching my head and we'll have a talk over uh, some kind of meal this weekend and I'll still say it's not true. Well, I, I just want to keep challenging you. Keep checking Jesus out based on the Bible, not on what's in your head or what other people are saying. But okay, that, that might be you. Um, but perhaps you're thinking this morning and, and you're seeing maybe, but I need more information about this Jesus. Excellent. Fantastic. I want to say keep coming to church, keep coming to talk with a friend who brought you perhaps this morning, but read the Bible for yourself. Read the biographies about Jesus for yourself. But there's a third category of person this morning, and maybe this is you, and you're saying, I really see who Jesus is. He is God's king. He's been rejected in my place. And I can see that trusting in him, I can be forgiven with God. And here's the step you can take to make him my king. And there's a prayer that's about to come up that you could pray. And it's as simple as this. I'm going to read it first and then I'm going to pray it. And perhaps if it is your prayer this morning, you can just pray it in the silence of your heart to God. Oh God, forgive me for being the boss of my own life and rejecting your king, Jesus. I want to trust Jesus as my king the one who was abandoned by you for my sin, so I could be forgiven and welcomed as your child. Amen. So if this is your prayer this morning, if you're seeing it like the centurion saw it, please do echo these words in your heart to God, and I'll give you enough space between the sentences to pray it as well. Let's pray. Please join me and let's pray. Oh God, forgive me for being the boss of my own life. And rejecting your king, Jesus. I want to trust Jesus as my king. The one who was abandoned by you for my sin. So I could be welcomed as your child. Amen.